And so if you have a Bible with you and you've been following along, I hope you keep your finger there in Genesis 42. Here's the, the way we're going to progress. This particular passage moves through a few scenes, and in many ways it is a kind of center point in the way that God is going to bring about redemption uh, for Jacob and his family in a surprising way. And the way that these are going to play out is we're going to take a consideration of the first five verses And these first five verses, as we look at them, we're going to come to see, I hope that I'm going to help you come to see that what is taking place here in the beginning, this first scene of Genesis 42 that introduces again, yet again, another conflict, that these verses constitute what I'm going to call a providential need. A need, not a pleasant need, not a pleasant thing. None of us like to feel need, but it's providential. And so these first five verses we're going to see is a providential need and you're going to consider it. And starting in verse 6, the scene completely and utterly changes. It's moved along because of God's providence and the need that he presents. And the scene change then moves to the palace. What happens to the palace, unbeknownst to the brothers and uninvited by Joseph, we have what I'm going to call a surprise reunion. I don't know what your experience is with reunions, but if you're the kind of person who doesn't like them, the only thing worse than a reunion is a surprise one. And so this is a surprise reunion that takes place here between Joseph and his brothers in the palace. And then after this reunion and what results from it, the brothers are sent away. The scene scene shifts once again back to Jacob in verses 26 through 38. And here, rather than focusing on what takes place or the activity, I think that more of the focus is on what's happening in Jacob and his sons. And so for that section, we're going to see that the theme seems to be grief and guilt. Grief and guilt. So I said that the text opens with a providential need. Now, need is a very simplified, small way to describe what's happening in the beginning of Genesis 42. There is a famine in the land. That has been foretold by Pharaoh's dreams in the previous chapter and is now coming to pass And this is a kind of trouble, a kind of difficulty, a sorrow that is being afflicted really from the earth, upon the earth, on everyone. Up to this point in our story concerning Joseph, most of the trouble and sorrow has been personal. He's been the only one really who's suffered in any significant or deep way, although that may seem very harsh to the baker, so we'll include him too. He also suffered. But for our purposes, Joseph has been an individual sufferer. And now we see that suffering has come upon the land. And more pointedly, upon Jacob and his whole family, they have not been spared from the difficulty of the famine. Now, one thing that might help us here to realize the grim nature of the affair is to consider famine. I don't believe that any of us lack the dictionary definition of famine. You know what this is. But one of the difficulties here is not that we don't know the definition, but my guess is is that none of us have come close to ever experiencing a famine. Or more than that, never have come close to someone who is experiencing famine. Now, I know that in America today and right now, there are people who hunger. And that is a very real thing. And we should long and work toward these things being done away with. But when we say famine, it is on such a large scale and so widespread that it is difficult to fathom. 
And throughout history, when you couldn't just be, you know, disturbed that your favorite brand of orange juice was not found at Whole Foods, a famine was something to fear. If you go through the list, there is nearly, nearly every civilization throughout history has felt the difficulty and experienced the death that comes with not having enough food. We simply do not understand this. In fact, I was trying to think back of any time, like, what have been the moments where I really felt uncomfortable because of food? What's amazing is in our day and age, we have become what we consider to be so self-sufficient that really our main concern regarding food is that we eat too much. I had to think of one time when there was a moment of disturbance in my world of food. I was 12 years old in Orlando, Florida. We took a very unexpected and surprising, when I'm looking back, trip to Disney World for my brother's 14th birthday. So I tagged along in the rental car. We're driving through a place that seemed completely other to me, you know, big city and all that was going on. And we went to the place that you go to when you finally get out into a place of culture and excitement. And those of you who know Orlando know that's already tongue-in-cheek. But what I'm telling you is, is that we went to Taco Bell because we love Taco Bell. And really, like, I can, I'm trying to think back in my life, when of moments that I thought about food, and here's what happened. I was very confident in my order. I knew exactly what I got when I went to this place. I would get these little potatoes and cheese thing that had, like, tots in them with nacho cheese everywhere. And then I would put all the hot sauce in them and mix them up. And I would eat three of these, and that was my whole lunch, because that's what middle schoolers do. So I marched up there, and I'm in a new place, I'm excited, and I order my order, and they looked at me with disdain and said, there is no such thing, you cannot have that. And I thought through all of, in that moment, I just thought through, well, what am I going to do? I don't know what to order, plus they're wrong, because this is a restaurant I go to all the time. But I could not get what I wanted, and I remember in that moment feeling so out of place, and I ordered tacos haphazardly, and also because I was in middle school, I hated lettuce. And it was a moment when I remember just feeling like I'm starved and I'm in a different place. And here's what's amazing about talking about famines. We live in such a food-filled world that for me to describe the difficulty of a famine, I have to tell you stupid, petty stories about Taco Bell when I was 12. But for them, and in this day and age, a famine was life and death, mostly death. This isn't too far removed from us. We read about the scope of famines at different points. In 1770, there was a famine that afflicted the Bengali people, and it is estimated that some 10 million people died because there was not enough food. This is just a few hundred years ago. Imagine 10 million people dying because they cannot produce food. They go to the land, they look for provision, it says no. Perhaps maybe one of the only famines in known history that is larger than that one surprisingly happened around 1960. Now, for a mix of social and political factors as well as major droughts and the land not producing, the great China famine killed upwards and beyond likely much more than 15 million people 60 years ago. Imagine the plight of mothers and fathers, of sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and friends 
frantically looking around saying, does anyone have bread? And Jacob, who is reintroduced at the beginning of Genesis 42, he's been a background figure. The last we heard of him is he said at the end of Genesis 37, basically, I'm so sad that Joseph is dead, I'm just going to sit here in sorrow while my days pass. And now in Genesis 42, Jacob is coming to the forefront again, dealing with and wondering how am I going to solve this massive problem that threatens the life of my family, my family that is a part of the covenant of God, my family that is supposed to have ancestry more numerous than the sand on the shore. And he's a little cranky. It's said that grief is very, very closely tied to anger, that oftentimes it is sadness of soul that leads to harshness and crankiness of life. And I think we see that here in verse 1 of Genesis 42. Jacob has now and still is maintaining a patriarchal figure. He is the head of the house and he's worried that everyone will die. Meanwhile, he's grieving the loss of Joseph and looks around at the rest of his kids and their dysfunction comes straight to the forefront. He basically says to them, everyone's dying, there's no food, and you're all worthless. Now, clearly, this was a dire situation, but anyone who has, I think, been a parent and felt the stresses of life, the tiredness of running a home, maybe has felt this to some extent with their kids. It's like built into the experience. I don't know what it was in your home or what your parents used to say, but you can imagine it. Sometimes kids just sit there and look at you. There's a lot to do, and they do nothing. I read the beginning of Genesis 42, and I think to myself, oh man, I say things like this to my kids. Do you see your mother over there in the kitchen? Do you see her? And you're just looking at, where do you think clean clothes come from? Oh, you're complaining about school. Do you want to walk to school next time? Where do you think rides come from? You know what I mean? Like this kind of thing. And Jacob now is old and fearful for the life of his family and saddened by the death of Joseph, what he believes to be the death of Joseph, and he feels as though he has no help. And it's in this particular moment that two bits of God's providence combine. The providential need that will move Jacob and his sons into safety is met by the previous providence that we saw of Joseph being in charge of the one place that has food. And so the question comes to my mind. Have we learned well enough now after watching Joseph's story and considering all the way that God has been faithful to his covenantal people, are we learning the lesson enough that oftentimes the way that God will direct and guide us is not through lollipops and fun time. Sometimes He allows and introduces a kind of soul-shaking, shifting movement for us that can only be described by some as severe mercy. Sometimes God's mercy comes to us, His movement comes to us, His love comes to us, in odd packages. We must allow for moments that God is with us and for us even though things are hard. 
If we don't have that as a category, I don't believe we've learned the lesson. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson well. Here's how he describes this idea that God can bring difficulty or allow difficulty and yet it be for our good. What is the lesson that we're to learn through this? You won't have this on your screens, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He calls it affliction that he's experiencing. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So Paul has just experienced something that he believes to be the providence of God. And what does he learn from it? What is a lesson that we can always learn through difficulty when it doesn't feel like God's there? He says this in the end of verse 9, 2 Corinthians 1, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What does difficulty call us to do? Difficulty in any circumstance, difficulty from our own sin, difficulty from a fallen world, difficulty from natural causes, difficulty from the sin of others, at each and every turn, a lesson we can learn, something we can implement is to say this, empty me of myself and my self-reliance and my self-interest and my self-pity. And God, teach me to rely on you. That's the lesson that is being pressed forward in all of Joseph's life and in Jacob's life. I feel like I should admit something so this doesn't come across as me saying, what's your problem? Why aren't you more happy when things are bad? And let me just confess to you, I don't do well when suffering comes. I really don't believe I do well. Like I look back over my life and over 15 years plus, I can think of a lot of circumstances that I would consider to be severe mercy. When I don't, I still to this day don't know what God was doing. And I can look back and these are difficult times. These are fetal position crying inducing times. These are potentially very hard to talk about it kind of times. These are scar leaving kind of times. And if I'm honest about it, I look back and I think to myself, I was sustained and I kept walking and I didn't go crazy. When I say I don't do well in suffering, it's not as though I'm walking around shaking my fist. I don't forget the things that I know. But what I feel is that I more just kind of turtle up and just walk forward in a sort of I will endure. This is a fog. And you know what I long for? I long to be, sometimes I hear people talk about their moments of suffering. And they say, you know, I experienced a sweetness of soul that I never knew before. I had a prayer life that was more rejoicing than I'd ever, ever imagined. Have you heard people talk like this through suffering? I sometimes envy them. And so when I say to you that I want to learn this lesson, or that we should learn this lesson, I, I mean it as a momentary, by, a moment by moment, like an in-now kind of thing. So here's a few. If you wanted like a sort of path a thing that I think to myself, how do we get through hard times? How do we admit that they're hard, not lose sight of who God is, and keep walking? First thing is I, I try to rehearse as much as I can what I know to be true concerning God. And that is this. If there's one thing that Scripture teaches and life experience teaches, is that God alone is self-sufficient. God alone is the only one without need. God is the only unchanging one, the only one who never forsakes 
when it seems like all else fails, God never fails. So I don't trust circumstances. I tell myself, I know who God is. Second, I try to let suffering, and what I'm trying to do, what I want to do, is to let it remind me of who I am. The Apostle Paul said, here's what you should do when trials and difficulty come. When you feel so burdened, it's as though you were sentenced to death. Rely on God. Well, in order to do that, you need to empty reliance on self. So I'm trying to tell myself things like this. Lance, you're not strong. Of course you're going to feel weak. Lance, you weren't promised perfect health. Of course you'll fall apart. You're at best a tent. That's what the Bible says. These kind of things break a pride in me that says maybe something like this. Sure, for normal people, that's the experience. But pride in a human soul sometimes has a very subtle way to say, I will be the exception. And so I think I get paralyzed sometimes in suffering because what I wish to be true is that I would be the exception. You know, normal people get sick. Normal people get sad. Normal people are moved by the sin of others. It's normal people who feel weak, but not me. And I think that when difficulty comes, I'm trying to learn the lessons, not only, which I think I do a good job of, of remembering and holding, this is I know who God is, I'm going to keep walking and He's there. Sometimes I'm too afraid to admit just how weak I am. And I want to learn better the lessons of forgetting me and embracing the fact that unlike God, God has no need. He is completely and utterly sufficient in Himself. The opposite is true of me. And then maybe two postures that I think. How do we deal with severe mercy? How do we deal with a providential need? I think to myself, don't let a fog of heart turn into a hardness of heart where you cannot be malleable. And so I pray that there are spots of my soul that I am longing for and allowing God to move and to change me when necessary. I also try to have what I I would just call an ability to see a watchful eye. I think sometimes because I want to get through and I want to be faithful and I just want to plod on, that maybe I'm not watching well. I'm not watching for the presence of God and for His provision and for His kindness. And so it's possible that others see what I don't see because they're looking when I'm not looking. This is a confession in many ways. But I hope it's also an encouragement to say that all throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, all we find are weak people in weak situations. The earth continues to press against. Since the fall, God promises the ground itself is going to fight against you. Sometimes famine comes. Sometimes pandemics come. Sometimes cancer comes. Sometimes death comes. Like, we're going to have to endure providential moments of need. And I want to learn the lesson as well. And it is this need, remember now, two moments of God's providence. Egypt has food. Canaan has none. It's going to bring about a scene change in verse 6, and what we call the surprise reunion. Starting in verse 6, the brothers. 
save Benjamin, who has now perhaps taken the, the role of favorite since Joseph is gone. There's a favoritism theme that runs through Jacob's life, essentially tied to Rachel, his favorite wife, and we see that popping up again and again. So Benjamin stays because of that, but the ten brothers go, and we read very, very clearly in Genesis 42 that Joseph now has what can only be described as an uninvited reunion with his brothers. And the narrator wants to tell us right from the start that he knows who they are. Verse 7 tells us Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. He recognized them. Now, who can tell all that goes into these words? He saw them and recognized them. This is well more, way more than a decade after their betrayal and selling him into sin. Anyone who's been sinned against bitterly knows the temptation and the reality that you probably rehearse moments like this over and over and over again. Oh, if given the chance, here's what I'd say. Oh, if we could redo this, here's what I would rebut. Oh, if I could, if I could tell them how I felt. It's one of the problems of resentment and bitterness that it's always sort of under the surface. I heard someone say one time, the, the reason it's so easy to be bitter is that bitterness and resentment have great study habits. Rehearse, 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 rehearse. Repeat, 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 repeat. So imagine through the years. Imagine through the years. Joseph now presented. He's not asking for this. Providentially, the reunion comes to him in the same way that the need came to his brothers. And they stand in front. The brothers don't know who he is, but he knows. The rest of this passage is a question mark for us. Because we know that Joseph knows. And because the brothers don't know, the things that come to mind is, will vindictiveness win out? Will Joseph make them pay? Will this be just another story with those who have power use it to break the powerless? Will Joseph give in to inevitable feelings of harshness and vindictiveness and full-on resentment? Or is it possible that he will have received grace and desire to forgive and to be reunited? That is the question of the reunion. In the midst of all of this dysfunction, how will Joseph act? Now, one of the first things to note here is that sometimes when we've been sinned against and sometimes when we've been pushing feeling down and sometimes when we have real scars, they come back to us in moments when we're not expecting. Joseph is met with. He remembers them and remembers the dream that he had. And I want you to think about the fact that he was not prepared for this. He was not expecting this. In fact, at the end of 41, you remember what he called his son? He called his son, I forgot my troubles. It seems as though Joseph has created a life where he can forget, he can push back, he can say all of that sadness and harshness is way back there, and now in a moment, unexpectedly, he turns and sees the brothers, and it all comes rushing back. He tried to escape, but the pains have resurfaced. Now, this may be, this may be odd to you. 
and I'm going to risk losing some esteem, perhaps, in your sight. When I think about a moment like this, I think about what he must have felt, and it it bears out. There's times when he overhears his brothers speaking of their guilt, and he has to remove himself and weep. I thought of a Celine Dion song. So there's one thing about Celine. First thing to know is that my wife loved her when we got married. That was like the person that she, she loved. And so in the 18 years of our marriage, there's many things that we've done together that have been super, super enjoyable. And, and sometimes you go, to, you go to concerts. And so I confess to you this morning that I've seen Celine in concert not once but twice. Twice. And that's okay because there are some concerts that I've gone to with Sarah that I could have completely left. He's looking at you, Shania Twain. But there are other (laughs) concerts that I've gone to where, here's the thing, I love and enjoy excellence. World class of something is a wonder to me. Are you a world class cross-stitcher? I'll come watch. Like, I'm excited about this. And there is something that can be said for Celine. She sings with power and emotion. And so I'm thinking about, I thought about this song, and maybe cheesy to you, but Joseph in a second, he thinks he's forgotten. It's all in the past, and he made himself so strong again somehow. You know the song I'm going for? And then she has this line where she just sings like, and it's all coming back to me now, okay? So we're just, we're just over it, and you guys think less of me now, and we're okay, everybody's there. But I really do think Joseph has to remove himself. He goes into another room and he's just feeling everything. He named his son, I forgot. I'm over it. It's gone. It's not gone. They're standing in the palace. And I think that song, because, I mean, this is like a powerful thing. Like, she just belts it out. Like, it's coming from soul. He forgot. He made himself a spot. He thinks everything's fine. The brothers walk in, it's all coming to You know what I mean? This is what is happening. He's not asking for it. It's a surprise. And it's in this moment that his belief in forgiveness, his belief that he has gotten stronger, his belief that God is with him, his fear of God that he mentions to his brothers are all going to be tested. It is oftentimes a moment of difficulty, especially when we're surprised and we can't be polished and prepared for it, that our true selves are revealed. And so we watch, and we think, what's going to happen here? And he kind of leaves us hanging, just like he does with his brothers. He speaks harshly to them and treats them as strangers. But I think ultimately, even in his harshness, he is pressing at one question, one thing that is being pressed in this text. Have the brothers admitted their guilt, and their dishonesty. He accuses them of being spies, and how do they respond? And one of the most ironic, crazy things they could say, we're honest men. How many times does Joseph have to endure them saying, one of our brothers is no more? Every single time they say it, the lies piling up. Are they honest men? Are they been honest about their sin. They realized the harm that they afflicted on their brother. That's the question. After all these years, are they honest? 
The word honest shows up five times in this text. They say it of themselves. Doth protesteth too much. They tell their father the story. And we, we told, we're honest men. We're honest men. If we're honest men, we'll do this. If we're honest men, and all the while lying to Joseph, who was alive, and to Jacob, who believes his son is dead. So the basic question and the basic idea here is, is that Joseph, in all of his power and all of his position, Will God give him grace to be powerful enough to forgive? And it's with this question still lingering in the background, you can see moments of his care coming through when he gives them provisions and says, actually, let's arrange a situation where the rest of the family has to come. He throws money into their bags because he wants to care for them. And finally sends them away, which gives us the scene change that starts to reveal and focus back again the grief and guilt of Jacob and the brothers. The brothers were returned home. Simeon is left behind, held hostage. And what is made evident in the, what they believe to be a private conversation in the palace now comes fully out into the open, and that is this, that no matter how they tried to hide it, the brothers have been riddled with guilt. See, here's the thing about sin. This is what the Psalms tell us, right? Is that no matter how unwilling we are to confess sin, our soul always confesses it. The psalmist says, if you keep sin inside, it'll just eat you from the inside. You can't shut it up. And in this way, true guilt is a gift from God. True guilt, the kind of thing that won't let you make peace with sin, is God loving them. But they say again and again and again, in an open conversation they thought was private in the palace, God has done this, our, our blood guilt is being revisited upon us. It tells us not once but twice in their passage back home that when they discover the, the money that they are fearful and afraid their guilt has left them not free and forgiven, but fearful and enslaved. They cannot get past the guilt of their sin. It has left scars, and God is orchestrating circumstances, including bringing them, unbeknownst to them, in front of their own brother bring them to the point where they must do the only thing that you can do with guilt and sin, lest you die, and that is to face it and to confess it. In addition to the brothers and their guilt, we revisit Jacob and realize that he has been honest and truthful about what he was going to do. When he heard that Joseph had died, he said, I'm just going to stay here and be sad until I die. And that is, in fact, what he is doing. They come back and they tell him the story. And then Jacob says something intriguing to them. Jacob says in his grief to them in verse 36, You have bereaved me of my children. Now, you might be thinking, they just told him the story of Simeon, right? This is happening 
probably more than 15 years. It's 13 years from the point of Joseph being sold until he becomes in charge of Egypt, the seven years of, of good, good times, right? So that's at least, at least 20 years, right? A couple decades gone. And now the story of Simeon comes where he's been left behind. You'd think when he says, you bereaved me of my children, that the first thing he would mention is Simeon, but he goes all the way back to Joseph. Joseph has been taken from me. Joseph is no more, he says, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. The thing that's interesting about this is that Jacob blames them for the death of Joseph despite their lies. Derek Kidner says of this, you know, Jacob, he, he kind of, he knew something, right? Kidner says that under a father's eye, their actual crimes might be covered up, but not their character. Jacob, with a kind of father, fatherly wisdom, knows that somehow, some way, despite what they say, that they are guilty for Joseph being no more. And Jacob sits here in grief. He doubles down again at the same wording at the end of Genesis 37. He says, no, 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 you cannot take Benjamin. Here's the thing. If you do, I'm just going to be even older and more sad until I die. You're going to sad me to death. And the chapter ends here with outstanding questions of, is the famine going to be resolved? And is Joseph going to be able to forgive? And are the brothers ever going to get over the guilt of their sin? And is Jacob ever going to get past the real grief of loss? I think the reason we love this story is because ultimately we realize and maybe even identify with these characters when we feel these kind of things. And all of us, because we've read ahead, we know that the answer is ultimately yes. The redemption of God means that one day this world will be remade completely. No more famines, no more hurricanes, no more pandemics. And we long for that day. It means, yes, for all of our deepest hurts and pains when others have sinned against us. All the times that you wish you could be free, wish you could be better at forgiving, but still feel the pains the answer unequivocally from Scripture is yes, God will redeem and give you grace to forgive. Joseph's power will ultimately be not just in his position in Egypt, but in the fact that he is able to give forgiveness. If you have the question of your guilt, if you're here and you think to yourself, well, I am riddled with guilt in much the same way, I cannot bring myself to say it, it's all past there and I can't uncover it, I don't have the power, I don't have the strength to dig it up. If you feel riddled by guilt, the ultimate story of Scripture is that God can redeem, that forgiveness can be offered, that sin is best uncovered because it's the only way that it's paid for. Or maybe you have felt the pains of this world and all that you loved and all that you longed for, your favorite things have been taken from you, and you think, I'm just going to die in grief. There's nothing to long for, nothing to hope for. The reason we love the story of Joseph, and we love the providence of God in his life and in God's people's lives, is because we can relate to what loss feels like. And what we want to say to Jacob, we want to shake him through the pages, we want to scream in here and say, Joseph is alive, and Simeon will be fine, and Benjamin will thrive. 
Jacob, there's hope. What you might want to say to him is something like this, even in the midst of a famine and even in the midst of conniving children and even in the midst of your grief, there is life in the midst of death. That's the story of Scripture through and through. There is life in the midst of death. His first command to his sons, please go to Egypt and see if we could possibly live and not die. And I think in the middle of all of these questions and what we experience and what we feel, the middle of guilt and sadness and all this, the real question is, is there life and not death? Is it possible to think that? Can we hope for that? And I love the story of Joseph because again and again, despite every bit of evidence to the contrary, we exclaim, yes. God is working. He's not forsaking. God is willing. He's not harsh. And ultimately, God brings life. Let's pray. God, thank you that we know the end of the story. I thank you that when we read these passages and perhaps relate to them, I thank you that we live on this side of Jesus who has come as the ultimate answer to sin and suffering and death. Father, I want to learn the lessons of Scripture. I don't want to be surprised when trials come or live in a fog of listlessness just to try to get through. God, we long for your sweetness, for your presence, for your power in our lives. And so I ask God, help us to walk through difficulty. I pray too that you'd help us to forgive for those of us who have felt, even this morning, are rehearsing again and feeling the bitterness in our hearts. God, help us to forgive. I pray that you'd help us to confess as well for those sins that fester. God, bring us the sweetness confessing and living honestly before you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.